Hello out there, and welcome to the Crime is Up podcast, where we showcase the best in hard-boiled criminal tales. I'm Christopher Afonco Bradley, here with Will Benson. Ah, yes, I'm still here. Am I? Chris? Chris, am I still here? (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) And today we aren't bringing you the best in hard-boiled criminal tales. Uh, We're just going to bring you the movie appreciation half of the episode. Reason being is we're in the midst of creating Season 2's hard-boiled crime fiction stories. Uh, But it takes some time, especially with the pandemic going on, and we're a ways off from wanting to debut Season 2. Last pandemic I remember was uh, when the Peter Pan musical opened. Uh, what? <laughs> anyway, um, that's a slow burn. Slow burn. Uh, I had a took a second. Uh, no, but uh, we're, we're going to give you a last uh, last second twist. I'm Sharon Stone. Keep your legs crossed, please. Uh, Never. So we. <laughs> So we have this series to help us bridge the gap while we create the new hard-boiled criminal tales. So today we're here to talk about a neo-noir classic that most of you listeners have probably seen called The Usual Suspects. If you haven't seen this movie, then I don't suggest listening to this episode because we are going to spoil it for you. Uh, And this movie's ending is too good to ruin. Yes, unfortunately, I ruined the ending for my own father halfway through the movie. Uh, We'd have been hiking for the day, because at 12 years old, which I was, uh, shall we say, I was a little bit of a big boy. Um, There's a a picture from the previous summer where me and Poppin' Fresh, as I call him, had both caught some impressive fish. Uh, He snagged a northern pike and I a largemouth bass. Uh, We both looked very happy, and we were. Uh, the difference being that I looked like I was going to swallow that fish whole and pull out a bare skeleton like a fucking cartoon character or just tear into it like a huge uh, golem. Um, the, the point is, uh, he did what any dad should do and took me hiking, canoeing, uh, any fun activity he could think of to get me uh, to be less of a big boy and more of a strong boy. Uh, did he tie cinder blocks to me and make me run? Make me flip and carry tractor tires? No. No, he was, he was a gentleman. He didn't, he didn't hook me up to the plow. <laughs> back, but back to the story, though. Uh, we'd been hiking. I believe it was Mount Marcy. Uh, and on the drive back home, we passed a mall cinema. I saw the marquee and proposed we catch a flick because, well, I loved and love movies. We decided, based on the posters in the theater... And the closest showtime. Usual suspects it was. And we saw that motherfucker. And I, again, a 12-year-old, hadn't seen anything like it. But halfway through, in my simple child's brain, clogged with fat, uh, I, realized, I realized who Kaiser Soze was. And I told my dad. And the one guy sitting solo near us. That guy was displeased. But my dad just said, huh, let's see if you're right. And I was. Uh, Last note after that was the one and only time I entered an outback steakhouse after the movie uh, in the same mall complex. We got a table. Our waiter came up and cheerfully said, good day, mates. Uh, He said other things and left us alone to look at giant menus. Uh, And we quickly both decided to leave and keep driving. Uh, we made sandwiches back home a few hours later. 
Oh, what's wrong with Outback? I actually go there on occasion with my dad and my stepmom. What's not to love about Bloomin' Onions, man? It's just like a, a beautiful flower of fried goodness. And I have a tall, frosty mugs of beer. Not that 12-year-old you could have liked them, but they give you so much food that you could take half of it home and still get a second meal out of it. Yeah, a $10 onion? My dad was having none of it. <laughs> you know, I'll just uh, I'll just be across the the lot at the Pizza Hut. Um, mm. of, of course, Pizza Hut lost its epic war with Domino's, and the building is abandoned. I I just live there, still uh, trying to get the last of that hut smell. You know what I mean? But uh, we should we should get back on track. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I actually also watched this movie for the first time with my dad. Uh, it was one of the many ones that we rented from the library and watched, I guess, either 7th or 8th grade. Uh, I'd been bugging him to see it because I had heard about the twist ending from someone. and uh, I was a budding cinephile and thought for sure that I could guess the ending before it came. You're, it you're a, a budding what? Do you have to tell people that? Cin- Is that the yeah. law? <laughs> Cin- <laughs> Cinephile. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Lover of movies. Lover movies, of movies. Uh, yes, okay. yes. Yeah. So I do. <laughs> uh, so yes, budding cinephile took it as a challenge. Uh, we we watched it on VHS, and I remember uh, when they did the false reveal that Keaton was Soze. I just sort of shrugged and looked over at my dad and said, well, okay, that makes sense. I didn't see it coming, but it was kind of meh. And my dad didn't let on. He just said, yeah, that's how it goes. And we kept watching the whole time with him managing not to spoil the surprise. And then, of course, my teenage brain was just blown away by the revelation of Kaiser Soze. I was really taken by that ending. It totally got me. And I'm sure my dad loved the look of surprise on my face when it happened. Yeah, library movies were so awesome. And in my hometown branch, you could request something, and the sweet old ladies were so happy to do it. And thus, I saw Lucio Fulci's The New York Ripper. Did you request that, or was it one they already had? Oh, no, I requested it. (laughs) And they went out and they bought a copy of that for you? Yes, sir. I... Oh, I, taxpayer dollars, <laughs> taxpayer dollars, fun, <laughs> funding my that's, depravity. Oh, yeah, it's insane. <laughs> I don't know. They, they, I mean, these librarians, they knew me for when I was like three years old, you know? And so when I'm there at like, you know, I don't know, 14, 15, I don't even know. But uh, they were just like, oh, sure. The New York Ripper. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Some library. I mean, the cover literally <laughs> has a dead woman on the front of yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> I am familiar. That's that's what gets me. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, Vermont's a special place. Uh, also, uh, our library kind of doubled as a um, daycare for homeless people. Uh, so uh, they, were, they, were pretty, they were pretty lenient, you know. There you go. Uh, so back to the twist ending. Uh, listeners, sweet, sweet listeners, I'm here to tell you that I found something new in that ending this last time I watched it. Something, perhaps, that you haven't considered before. When Will floated the idea of doing the movie for this bridge episode, I was on the fence because I couldn't think of anything else to say about the usual suspects that kind of hadn't been set. It's a classic that's been seen by everyone and spoken on exhaustively by critics and fans alike. 
But then I rewatched it, and I found myself drawing a new conclusion about the ending that I'd never thought about before. And that changes the whole movie for me. I still love it, but maybe it'll give you something new to chew on, too. So take a listen to our appreciation of The Usual Suspects to see if your mind is blown, or if you think I'm full of hot air. Well, I've had enough of your burps in my face to know that you are. <laughs> it's a regular regular smaug. You are. Yeah, I thought I yeah. you up for that one. Yeah. Uh, but the, <laughs> that was when we were cramped in a sauna, like six inches from each other. Now... We are many miles apart. I'm in Manhattan, stuffed in my office closet. Then you are huddled beneath, what, a pillow fort out there in Brooklyn? Yes, the first thing I did was build a pillow fort. <laughs> as soon as you moved uh-huh. here. <laughs> uh, all right, well, uh, before we get into the movie itself, we have to be socially responsible and talk briefly about the problematic issues regarding the movie's director, Brian Singer, and its Oscar-winning actor, Kevin Spacey. There have been multiple allegations concerning both men engaging in the sexual abuse and rape of underage boys. The Atlantic has a tough read by Alex French and Maximilian Potter detailing four accusers of singers, and there's a more recent expose from Tatiana Siegel at The Hollywood Reporter that talks about how that abuse went unchecked in Hollywood for so long. That's not a hard question to answer. His movies were making money, billions of dollars, and money talks. Yeah, look no further than, oh, the entire world we live in, uh, or just as far as your monthly bills that keep coming in. Uh, Money is power, and we've all grown up with that. What is done with that power, well... Yeah. So, uh, now that these accusations are public knowledge, how are you supposed to feel about it? The Usual Suspects is a masterpiece but it was made by two men who have many allegations of sexual abuse stacked up against them. Does this mean we can't still love the movie? Well, I wrestle with this sort of thing, because there's no easy answer. It's a similar debate concerning The King of Pop. Orville Redenbacher? Yeah. (laughs) Can we ever enjoy an Orville Redenbacher song again? (laughs) I mean, I still want to dance when I hear Billie Jean, but... Knowing what probably happened with Michael Jackson makes it kind of hard. But it's important to note that Singer and Spacey have yet to be tried for their crimes. Spacey was charged with sexual assault in Massachusetts, but before the trial began, the witness, who was 18 at the time of the alleged abuse, changed his mind about testifying. He was badgered on the stand and chose to seek the Fifth Amendment rather than continue testifying, and that killed the case and it was dismissed. I know I should stop joking, but... um. I really don't think they should allow live badgers into court <laughs> to intimidate witnesses. Just my opinion. Just my opinion. But you were you're on a roll there. Well, As, in my opinion, a couple of jokes go a long way. <laughs> this is serious stuff and again, so you know, we we just want to get this out at the top so that we can discuss the movie, but yeah, the, the this happens a lot of times when there are people who come forward with alleged abuse. Um But it is hard to feel good about trying someone in the court of public opinion without a real trial by a jury of your peers. Like, for instance, Harvey Weinstein. He was found guilty of third-degree rape, and so we can all feel good about him rotting in prison. Justice has been served. But that hasn't happened and likely never will with Singer or Spacey. We'll see, but it leaves us as film lovers in a precarious place. These men have not been found guilty of any crimes. 
but I've read many articles detailing the alleged abuse, and much of it seems credible. So it, it makes me want to see some justice done. And it makes me not want to sit here and laud Singer and Spacey for making this film. But The Usual Suspects is a masterpiece. So can we separate art from the artist? Yeah, it's a very important question, and one that I have trouble deciphering, too. Uh, it's really just up to what you're comfortable with, I suppose, and if you can make this separation, because it's not just these two men. I mean, there are many, many, many other uh, important artists that have done very terrible things. Uh, not going to make a list of names, but... um. Yeah, I, I don't know. Whether you choose to still watch the movies these men made or listen to Michael Jackson songs, I think is a personal decision. If you can do it with an asterisk in your mind and know that this thing of beauty was created by someone who may be a predatory, abusive monster, then that's your choice. And I think that is a personal choice. But what isn't a personal choice is that we as a society have to stop enabling these types of people. X-Men producer Laura Schuler Donner in the Hollywood Reporter article by Tatiana Siegler says, quote, It's a weird business, the film business. We honor creativity and talent, and we forgive the brilliant ones. Unconsciously, we probably do enable them by turning a blind eye to whatever they're doing and taking their product and putting it out to the world. End quote. I think that is such a heartbreaking admission. We have to say now that we are not okay with people doing these things. We can't protect a monster just because they sell movie tickets or records. And I, I think there is a shift happening where accusers and victims are hopefully having an easier time coming forward with this sort of thing. But if we foster a system of accountability for our artists, and for that matter, our politicians and religious figures too, but I won't get into that because that's a whole other can of worms, but if we can hold people accountable and not let this sort of thing be okay, then we won't allow bad people to keep doing bad things just because they're making money or they're important people. All right, that's, that's how I feel about it. That's all I got on the subject. Wait, Chris, but how do you really feel? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it, yeah, it's impossible to talk about this flick without addressing the Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer problem. And problem, of course, means that they've both been exiled from acting, producing, and directing because of all those accusations of systematically luring, drugging, and raping young people. Uh, there's a danger here in us even talking about this film, but we thought we should do it anyway, because it did mean a lot to us as a film in our formative years, as we're about to discuss. Fortunately, in our formative years, we never crossed paths with Kevin Spacey or Brian Singer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> That's a tough yeah. one. <laughs> uh, we both completely hope that uh, any fucking rapist of any sort is brought to justice. Yeah, and, and as Chris was saying, there's a ton of in-depth articles you can find easily about both of these men and their uh, alleged crimes. But what we want to talk about is the film. The point being, for me, uh, don't compromise what you know is right. Don't be silent, whatever the circumstances. Also, just don't be an idiot. Uh, just think of Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. He knows what to do. If Jean-Luc Picard could be the moral arbiter of all our decisions in the public interest, I wager we would have a better world. Uh, but I think it's important to say that movies are more than one person. It takes a crew of hundreds of people and a cast of many actors to pull a movie together. To dismiss a movie entirely because of two of the participants 
would be disrespectful to the others involved. So let's talk about those other people, like John Ottman, editor and composer, or the entire ensemble cast of this movie that kills it. There are so many talented people that we will now lavish with praise. So on to the movie talk. And I promise you a completely new, compelling way to look at the ending. And we'll get to that. But first, the cast. What a fantastic cast. Stephen Baldwin in a career high, swinging for the fences with McManus and connecting. Yeah, I love little Stevie Baldwin in this flick. Also, to me, he's one of the few characters that actually comes off as an actual criminal. He's got this tough guy, icy stare and calm demeanor. And of course, it's acting. But that's the thing, is that most tough guys are acting. Not that they won't beat your ass, but it's the street strut, you know? It's it's attitude. His performance is perfectly calibrated, I think, between a genuinely dangerous person and the right amount of showmanship. As is, somehow, Kevin Pollack, who is somehow completely believable as a dangerous person, I mean, in my opinion, in this film. Uh... Danny Trejo once said that John Cusack was one of the few stars he met in his long career who actually made him a little wary. Danny Trejo was a little wary of John Cusack. Because really? he, sa- he said it was in the <laughs> eyes. He said it was in the eyes. Okay. And I, I think Pollock taps into some sort of hidden lurking danger. Like he's literally ready to shoot everyone else at the drop of a rotten hat. Um, hmm. Which is an expression I'm trying to start. Feel free to use it. The drop of a rotten hat. Uh, <laughs> we'll work it in. Yeah. But but to quickly round out the cast, uh, Benicio Del Toro is clearly having a blast in his Benicio way. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's this is pretty much his breakout. Um, Kevin Spacey is doing a good job of knowing secrets, which in retrospect makes a lot of sense, uh, unfortunately. And this hurts to say... But I simply don't buy Gabriel Byrne here. I mean, a co- really? Yeah, a corporate criminal, sure. A guy who killed people in prison? Uh, no, not really. I mean, he's a strong actor to be sure. He's done many, many great things. I just, I just think he was miscast here. I mean, he's hmm. good as literally the devil in End of Days, you know, as a suave yeah. villain, but. That's a completely different style of bad guy. Huh. Well, I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree with you here because I think Gabriel Byrne did a great job as Dean Keaton. Uh, and I think he works well as as the heavy here because he does play it so seriously. Uh, Byrne brings everything that he has from working on serious Eugene O'Neill plays to this role. And I think he sells it really well. Well, maybe we can have a poll. Get out the vote. Personally, I would have preferred, like, uh, Woody Harrelson here, fresh off of Natural Born Killers. He was rebranding himself fiercely in the 90s, and I think he could have brought the right menacing charm and the believability of physical violence. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, man, I I can see Woody there. I would have been down with that, but Burns' intensity works for me. And the the role of Dean Keaton, I think, is one of the better... uh, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in stories what? in Thief movies. Wait, wait, hang on, hang on. I can't. That's uh, your Pacino? What's it? 
that's it's my uh, it's, yeah. it's more of a Stephen Van Zant doing Pacino <laughs> on The Sopranos. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's have a dueling uh, Pacino and Stallone at some point. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be delightful for everyone. Anyway, anyway, as yeah. as you were, as you were. Yeah. So, the Gabriel Byrne storyline here, it, it's that the just one more job subgenre, and I think it's a good example of that. Like when Keaton gets out of jail, he's there on the steps saying to uh, Susie and me, they ruined me in there tonight, Edie. That was actually a pretty good Burns. <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, so so he's there on the steps saying that to Susie and me, telling him uh, she's telling him that she loves him, and he doesn't even hear her. He's just watching Stephen Baldwin playing with the toothpick in his mouth, looking like a badass. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've seen that YouTube channel, Stephen Baldwin playing with a toothpick. Um, <laughs> Uh, but now, quick quick note on Susie, because uh, I, I thought it was Susie Amos, but uh, oh, we'll have to have okay. another poll. I, I don't know. We'll have to have another. I've poll. I've never had a. But also, that was a that was a really, that was actually a really good Gabriel Byrne, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, but, so so yeah, but a quick note on Susie Amos is that she's really just a plot point uh, in the film, uh, but in her brief time, I think she makes the most of it. She's such a sympathetic actor here, even though she has I don't know three lines four lines uh when what happens to her happens of course you really do feel it uh, so good job on her part in a pretty thankless role now of course she is mrs cameron yes james cameron after a similarly thankless role in uh let me check my notes titanic uh <laughs> Which I guess was a boat that fell in forbidden love with an iceberg. <laughs> that, that's your description of Titanic. Uh, all right. So Keaton still doesn't take the job. It takes one more scene. And I love the way that that scene was shot when Verbal goes to Keaton's place. And there's the, the convincing scene. The whole thing takes place in two shots. You've got a tight two shot when Keaton punches Verbal. And then it cuts to a big wide shot showing the apartment. And it is a baller apartment, like high ceilings, expensive furnishings, lots of art with a capital A. But none of it's Keaton's. And that's what bugs him. Verbal says to Keaton that he's got a good scam going with the lawyer, and that's what gets him punched. Obviously, Keaton doesn't want to be thought of as a lawyer's wife, like Stephen Baldwin called him earlier. And keeping the scene to show the space in that big old wide shot makes you consider this. It isn't his space. And they play the whole scene on a slow zoom there in just those two shots. It's a bold move, and it pays off. The cinematography by uh, Newton Thomas Siegel is top-notch at every turn. Each shot considered, nothing wasted. Yeah, uh, Newton Thomas Siegel is a real discovery for me. I'm surprised I hadn't looked at him up before, because I do love the way this movie's shot as well. I mean, I didn't even realize that he'd shot many movies I like. Very versatile and obviously a pro's pro. Uh, but, you know, Three Kings, you know, for David O. Russell. Uh, Terry Gilliam's The Brothers Grimm. Uh, well, you know, all, pretty much all of Singer's films. Uh, and just recently, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. That's an impressive variety with very different directors with very unique styles. But here is an example of a film where every shot feels calculated yet unobtrusive, accomplishing exactly what it wants to, and with some style. 
also has one of my favorite shots at the end of the Kobayashi hit, which is several reflections wrapped in reflections that I still can't quite wrap my head around, even after seeing it a couple dozen times. Yeah, it's quite a shot. But before we get too far ahead, the whole interrogation scene is a prime example of all the departments working together. The the script by Oscar-winning screenwriter Christopher McQuarrie has the scene laid out where it would jump between each member of the crew, moving the plot forward quite well as they're being interrogated by the cops, asking them questions about the robbery. But there were several edits and trims made by editor John Ottman that tightened things up even more. And the way that each question is answered by the next edit, you got the cop asking, you know what your buddy Fenster told us? Cuts to Fenster asking, who? And then the cop responding, McManus, he told us a different story altogether. Uh, It's so good the way that it jumps around like that. It, It has forward momentum, so much momentum that you don't pay attention to the fact that so much of the information is coming from a single untrustworthy source. Verbal Kint, Kevin Spacey. Oscar winner Kevin Spacey, who did turn in work worthy of that golden naked man statue, regardless of whatever he may have been doing in his personal life. But we already talked about that, so we don't have to get into it here again. And I do like the overblown overhead lighting on the characters in the interrogation scene. I mean, it's theatrical, uh, but not too much. Every part of this flick tells you what kind of flick it is. Uh, Nothing is out of step, I don't think. So after the interrogation scene, we have all these crooks in the holding cell together. And this crew is like the bad news bears. And the filmmakers set them up as the heroes by having the cops lean on them and treat them poorly, even though they ostensibly didn't do anything. This puts you on their side. Since they've been pushed around and abused and hit in the face during their interrogation by the cops, it gives us, as the audience, permission to be on their side, even though technically they're bad people. Yeah, everyone kind of wants to root for a criminal. It's just something in human nature, uh, dating back to Robin Hood. And, you know, I mean, it's like with the wise Alec comments that uh, Stephen Baldwin and Kevin Pollock give, specifically when, you know, they first get arrested, when you first see them. Are you sure you brought enough guys? Yeah, <laughs> great line. One thing I will say is, normally when I watch a movie, I don't pay too much attention to the characters' names. I tend to remember it based on the actors. Like, oh, yeah, when Jack Palance hit that guy, you know? But this movie, the characters are so well-defined and named that I do remember the names. That could be that I've seen it a hundred times, but it's just an observation. Uh, Jack Palance has hit many guys on screen and off. (laughs) Uh, But another note here is that this movie is obviously very stylized. uh, Perfectly so, in my opinion. But there are some, I think, cartoonish bits from time to time. Uh, Baldwin shooting two bodyguards at once during the uh, diamond heist. Uh, Impossible, yeah, but Uh, also cool. (laughs) Uh, And I I was thinking that since almost everything we see is Spacey talking to Chaz Palminteri and trying to string him along, uh, you know, give him a good yarn, that the insane Baldwin double tap is just a false embellishment meant to thrill. Uh, that the movie is doing to us what Spacey is doing to Palminteri. Is the movie that deep? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but also the Baldwin double tap is my signature third date move. <laughs> well, I can agree there's a certain amount of cartoonish exaggeration 
I mean, you know, right from the beginning, you have Kaiser Soze wielding his stream of urine with incredible aim as he pees and stops a gasoline fire with it. Then he restarts said gasoline fire a little bit later with a lit cigarette carelessly tossed over his shoulder. I mean, it's cool, especially if you see this movie for the first time when you're a teenager. It's insane and could never happen, but it's cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And uh, the thing is, that opening scene is one of the few that isn't Spacey's virgin, so it's actually true. Uh, That's how I figured it out in the theater back in the day. Um, Also, on rewatches, it's clearly Spacey's voice as Kaiser Soze. But one last note about um, gasoline fires. You cannot light gasoline on the ground with a lit cigarette. I've tried many, many times. Doesn't work. (laughs) Just the cigarette goes out and you're out of cigarette. Well, I mean, you could pick up the cigarette and smoke it again. I almost tried that once, yeah, but that's right. get a little extra contact. High I have, that I have, I have just enough sense, just enough uh, sense in my body to not do something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Another reason this works so well is that the heists are so slick. They're fun. The, the first one with New York's finest taxi service lets them get back at the cops who did them wrong. Again, it's underdog syndrome, and everyone relates to that. It's bad news bears. You're always rooting for them. Actually, that gives me a, a quick idea. Uh, what if a, a young Walter Matthau was Kaiser Soze? Ah. All right. Yeah. I, I mean, guess, young. Okay. Yeah, like, what, Charlie Varick style. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Something yeah, like yeah. that. I mean, would Walter Matthau always him? looked old, but, you know, the... the... Well, no, his father was a... Frickin' basset hound, I mean, but... (laughs) Uh, Moving on with the heists. The Saul job does not go well for them, and they have to kill everyone. Uh, And that line after the job goes wrong, when Stephen Baldwin's surveying things, and he just killed two people, and he says, Bad day. Fuck it. That line has always stuck with me. It's honestly become a bit of a mantra, After a particularly trying day on set, you know, 14 hours of carrying a camera around, as I'm rapping, I'll hear Stephen Baldwin's voice in the back of my brain. Bad day. Fuck it. And it it makes me smile. And it makes my bad day a little less bad. So, thanks, Stephen Baldwin. I have had many occasions to think that line in the course of 2020. Why? (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, but yeah. Oh, yeah, it's been a great year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think we're all doing... Fantastic. Um, Yeah, but Baldwin gets some great lines. Bad day, fuck it. Uh, The news said it's raining in New York, which is so incongruous to what they're talking about, yet oddly poetic. Uh, One of those lines that just sounds right. And, of course, his Oswald line, which I won't repeat. Oh, oh, and then there's also the, uh, on that farm, he shot some guys. (laughs) This little play on Old MacDonald. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it almost sounded sounded like improv. Yeah, he's he's like free and loose. I don't know. It's Mm. it's 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 terrific. Uh, But uh, we have to talk more Kobayashi here, who is in maybe the best two scenes of the movie. His introduction shot is genius. Uh, The camera pushes in on the guys in the pool hall from the entryway, as if making way for the presence of Kobayashi. And then when you see him for the first time, he's far off, enforcing the gang's POV. And he's just blended into the background darkness of that pool hall. It's so haunting. 
I mean, here's the shadowy, literally a shadowy figure who's so calm and controlled approaching them. And then you can see how they all sort of like knit together as a group. It's a just just great, great choreography. Hmm. Yeah, it's a great scene. Uh, and then, of course, there's the cool, calculated way Kobayashi's able to threaten the castration of McManus's nephew and yeah, all of the crew's family. Like that line, Miss Finneran will find herself the victim of a most gruesome violation before she dies. Uh, that sends chills through me every time. It, Is that your matter Pacino? Of fact, <laughs> it's how matter-of-fact he plays it, so even. It's terrifying to have someone say something so frightening without raising their voice or using crude language. Uh, it's like what my mom used to do to us. Um, if we did something wrong, she wouldn't yell at us. She'd start talking softly, admonishing us so quietly that we had to quiet down to hear her. It's masterful parenting, and with Pete Postlewaite, masterful acting. He was so good here. And we talked about Kobayashi in episode three when we were discussing Night in the City. And you know what? I'm going to double down on the idea uh, that I had in that episode. I think there are enough similarities between the Fergus Chilk character in Night in the City and Kobayashi in The Usual Suspects to believe that Pete Postlethwaite was inspired to play the role in that way. Uh, if anyone out there listening knows the answer, like, I don't know if there's some BBC interview I never saw where he mentions it, or if anybody worked on The Usual Suspects and has a line on that, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and that's not to say I'm trying to take anything away from Postlethwaite. He's great here. That's not what I'm doing. It, it just feels like a touchstone. It feels like a reference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and Postlethwaite has one of the tremendous faces of cinema. Uh, and you can put hundreds up on that Mount Rushmore. But he reminds me, a call back again to episode three, uh, Mike Mazurki. And uh, Chris, uh... say his name for me. Stanislas Zibesko. Yes, Gregorius, the living mountain. The bear hug, Gregorius. Uh, but Mr. Postlethwaite uh, belongs up there with both of them. I mean, alongside Charles Bronson, Lee Marvin, Gene Hackman, Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, these guys that if you saw in the street, you might try to put a little steel in your spine. And you definitely don't want them to be your girlfriend or boyfriend's father. <laughs> Yeah. It's not who you want opening the door before prom. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, Mr. Postlethwaite never saw the leading roles, really, that he should have, in my opinion. Uh, he should be more regaled, because he could do anything. He could even be charming and funny. One of those character actors that owned his own face and had ultimate control of his craft. The last real role he had, I believe, was in The Town when uh, I think he already knew he was on death's door from that real jerk called Cancer. Uh, but it's no accident. He was cast as Daniel Day-Lewis's father uh, and the Great Hunter in the Jurassic Park sequel. But I have zero doubt in my mind that he was basing Kobayashi on Chilk from Night in the City. Uh, uh, as you said, Touchstone, I'd say a bit of a tribute. Uh, and he does such a brilliant job. It's just, like, so smooth so calculated and calm like the still menace he brings is wonderful and when he's on screen it's honestly hard to look at anything else yeah, agreed and while we're talking about actors i want to give a shout out to dan hedea that haggard hound dog face of his 
adds a lot to a part that is a small supporting role. But he looks <laughs> so perpetually put upon, put out. I love the way Chaz Palminteri's uh, agent Dave Kuyan just takes over Dan Hedaya's office for the day. And then he's sending him out to get coffee, and verbal saying that the coffee is shit. And Hedaya's face there is priceless. Can we get back to the robbery, please? He's really good and, and proves that old adage that there are no small parts, only small actors. And this movie fills all the small parts out with great talent. You got Clark Gregg, who's Agent Coulson from the Marvel movies in a tiny role as a doctor. And then, of course, Giancarlo Esposito as Special Agent Jack Bayer, FBI. On Giancarlo Esposito, uh, he doesn't just have one of the best names in history. He's also a terrific actor who I first saw in Do the Right Thing, I believe. But I don't think he really got his proper national due until Gus in Breaking Bad as one of the Poyos Hermanos. Uh, and Dan Hedea is the epitome of the aggrieved police captain. <laughs> I'd like to see him and Joe Pantoliano have a captain off at some point. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'd like to over the same desk, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. Save that for Bad Boys 4. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But I know him best, uh, uh, Dan Hedaya, as the dad in Clueless, which I believe he was at the height of his powers. And I believe he won the Academy Award for Best Picture for that role. Um, Also also a scene in Alien 4. What is that, Resurrection? Yeah. Yeah. Alien Resurrection. uh, He has grown his own natural sweater. Man. (laughs) Man is never cold. Never cold. (sighs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of your jokes, I don't get. How could he win the Academy Award for Best Picture? He's a person. He's Danny Head. But uh, <laughs> so uh, you can see right from the beginning of the movie that uh, the camera loves Giancarlo Esposito. He wins it in his suit and hat, chomping a cigar like a man plucked out of a 40s comic strip. I mean, he plays it like he doesn't have time for anything that's happening. And he does the best police work in the film. He's actually the main reason I'm able to come up with my new conclusion about the ending. Because his character has accomplished and gathered the only facts that we as the audience can actually confirm. Because everything the verbal says about the barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois, and that guy whose orca fat is false. Yeah, that's true. He does by far the best police work in the movie. And he looks like a version of Easy Rollins from Walter Mosley's book series. Huh. But, you know, I'd love to see, like, you know, if only back in the day he had done. <laughs> if there was such a uh, TV movies series of uh, all the Easy Rollins stuff, uh, he'd be my he'd be my pick. Um, okay. Yeah, but, I can see it. Uh, yeah. But we also need to talk about Chaz Palminteri as Agent Kuyan. He's so clearly on a witch hunt for Gabriel Burns Keaton that he completely fails to see what's right in front of him, as does the audience. You know, he's doing a good job playing a cop, meaning he's sometimes smooth and reassuring and sometimes yelling and violent. But above all, he has an air of superiority. There's one shot in particular, a close-up on Spacey, when Chaz is making it clear that he is convinced that Keaton is Kaiser Soze. And we, the audience, see, but Chaz doesn't, the briefest smug satisfaction registering on Spacey's face. 
that drops back into the usual bland, hangdog, innocent look when Chaz sees him again. Chaz is making the mistake of many, uh, in many areas of the world, which is he's trying to prove his assumption instead of actually trying to find out the truth. Also, the Earth is flat and rests on a gigantic <laughs> galactic tortoise. <laughs> yes. I just I just learned this myself. Yeah, uh, I know it's shocking. Shocking. I, right? I actually had not heard about that old adage until I read uh, the Dark Tower tro- uh, the Dark Tower books. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, "What is this about the, the turtle? Is this re- he came up? I, I, <laughs> I had never heard of it before then." And, then was delighted to find out that there's all sorts of mythology about a giant galactic tortoise. <laughs> not not just from the Dark Tower. It's, no, no. It's way, from, way back. Yeah. yeah. Weird stuff. <laughs> People are weird. Yeah. Uh, but uh, here, uh, moving on, uh, some quick notes on Christopher McQuarrie, uh, the writer, and John Ottman, the composer and editor. The music and editing, in my opinion, is flawless, and it's very interesting to have one man do both. In fact, you were telling me, Chris, that Singer actually told him, if you're editing, then you're doing the score. And if you do the score, then you're editing. So, Mr. Ottman had to do double duty, which, I mean, anybody who's ever done a score or edited a film, feature film, that's quite a task. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Singer was, you know, he would lean on him heavily throughout uh, his career, uh, perhaps unfairly. But, I don't know, I kind of love that, actually. And it makes sense, in a way, to me. But, you know, it's a, it's a good testament to John Ottman's talents. Uh, and onto Christopher McQuarrie, who is now, of course, the mastermind of the last couple Mission Impossible flicks, and apparently the next two also, where he specializes in putting Tom Cruise in increasingly dangerous and brilliantly executed stunt set pieces. Because, as we all know, Tom Cruise is trying to reach Valhalla, <laughs> not, and, and and this is this is important. Not the stupid Marvel Valhalla, which is an insult to my heritage. Uh, my ancestors Valhalla, where warriors do battle every day, chop each other to pieces, put themselves back together, and then feast together. In other words, heaven. Uh, <laughs> but but now, uh, Christopher, my friend, uh, let's get to that interpretation of the ending you were uh, teasing us all with. Sounds good, William. So, we are accustomed to thinking of Kaiser Soze as the ultimate criminal. That he managed to manipulate everyone with the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. But I want to divorce you of that reasoning, dear listener. Kaiser Soze is not the criminal mastermind we've all thought he was. Let's take a look at what we know at the end of this movie. Yes, he gets away. Verbal gets away, and we learn that he was Kaiser Soze the whole time. So he's accomplished this, and he has left us bewildered because he's been our narrator and an unreliable one at that. So you're left at the end wondering what the heck actually happened. This is a fantastic device, and it makes you go over the movie in your head afterwards, and you can't help but have a sort of respect for this master manipulator, Verbal, Kaiser, because he told a great story. Even though everything we know about the lineup and those bad news bears criminals we've come to know and like and root for in this whole movies, just as made up as Kobayashi and Redfoot and the barbershop quartet from Skokie, Illinois. It doesn't matter because it was fun and entertaining. But let's take a look at what we do know. What facts do we, the audience, have at the end of this movie? 
only things that Verbal didn't tell us that we learned from other scenes. We know that Edie Finneran has been murdered. We know that there was a police lineup where these five crooks were brought in. And we know that there was a ship that got blown up and that there are a bunch of charred bodies on the pier. And you can uh, surmise that Hockney, you know, he was shot on the pier. Uh, So him being dead there likely is the truth. But you don't know for sure about Dean Keaton or about McManus. Because, well, they're unidentified blown-up bodies. Uh, You know, they'd have to use their teeth to identify them if they can find them. But we do know that Arturo Marquez washed up dead on the shore. He's the guy who supposedly knew who Kaiser Soze was and could ID him. Uh, Right, at the beginning, you think it's dope on the boat, but then you find out, through a course of events, that it was not dope that they were trying to buy. It was a man, a person. And we hear about this through... Arbosh Kobosh, the Hungarian burn victim, and he tells Giancarlo Esposito's agent Jack Bauer. <laughs> Jack Bauer. Jack Bayer about this. It's <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> so this information about Arturo Marquez is independently confirmed. So they're not there to buy dope. They're there to buy the one man, Arturo Marquez, who can identify Kaiser Soze. This isn't information we learned from Verbal. That means that this whole thing was put together so that Kaiser Soze could murder the one man who knew what he looked like. And we know that this guy actually knew about Soze because there's sworn testimony that the cops talk about. So again, this narrative that Kaiser Soze is trying to kill a witness is confirmed. There was no dope deal, which means we have to assume that Kaiser Soze was really going there to kill a witness. Kaiser Soze goes through this whole thing, whatever it is, in order to kill a man who knows his face. And he does that successfully. He kills Arturo Marquez, the one man who can identify him. But, and here's the thing that just hit me for the first time ever, now a whole lot of other people know Kaiser Soze's face. Not only does Dave Kuyan and Customs know him, but a whole host of cops. And they have a sketch of his face. They know who he is now. And there's a new witness the burned Hungarian victim, uh, Arbosh Kobosh, with a fried drumstick. So, in effect, Kaiser Soze is even worse off than when he started, because now there's a witness who can identify him and a whole bunch of cops that know who he is. That seems like a net loss to me. Even worse, Kaiser Soze is totally ignorant that they know. He doesn't even know that Arbosh Kobosh is alive and in a hospital. And he doesn't know that Agent Kuyan figured out his bullshit about the barbershop quartet and the Kobayashi porcelain. So that puts Kaiser Soze, the man, the criminal, the, the myth and legend, at a distinct disadvantage. He walks out of that police precinct thinking he's a boss, finally free and pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. Mission accomplished. But in killing one eyewitness, he created another that's still alive, And now there's a full description and police drawing of him. Yeah, when you think about it, his plan is literally to talk to cops all fucking day. It's it's kind of insane, but uh, maybe he was just that damn cocksure of himself. Yeah, And, and I know what you're thinking. That line. My guess is you'll never hear from him again. Just like that. He's gone. But, well... If he could just disappear like that, then why did he pop up for this super-secret kill mission to get Arturo Marquez, the only man who could identify him in the first place? It sounds to me like Kaiser doesn't want any witnesses. 
which would mean he would be just as eager to kill the fried drumstick Arbash Kobash and to try to squash that police sketch. I mean, otherwise, his whole plan has been for nothing. Not even just for nothing. My argument here is that Kaiser Soze not only loses at the end of this movie, but he comes out at a net loss. He is worse off than when it started. His plan didn't work. We don't know all the details of his plan and can never really know because he's an unreliable narrator and we can't trust the details of his plan, but we can come to know what the goal of his plan was. Knowing this, I can now say with full confidence that Kaiser Soze might have gotten away at the end, but he is not a criminal mastermind. He was arrogant and sloppy, and he didn't accomplish what he set out to do. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And I agree with you, you clever devil, you. Uh, he's, he's not caught, but he is more fucked than he was at the beginning. Yeah, and honestly, that's most of what I want to say about this movie, uh, because so much has already been said. Everything about it sings and hums and works together to tell one of the greatest crime stories ever put on screen. This has been in my top ten movies of all time for a long time. I had the poster on my wall for all of high school and college, Every time I moved, I'd, I'd put it up again using that blue sticky tack in the four corners to put it up. But it was pretty ratty and ragged by the time I finally decided I was an adult and couldn't have a movie poster in my room anymore if I expected to meet women and show them said bedroom. So I got rid of it. But it was up for the better part of a decade. So it was a big movie for me, and it got my brain thinking about cinema and how it works in ways that I hadn't before. The way that the editing worked in tandem with the music, the cast was perfect, the story structure got me thinking about why it worked, I read the screenplay, and I think that this and Pulp Fiction were the first screenplays I ever read. I wanted to deconstruct why it worked and what made it so good. There's a lot of craft in this movie. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about Macquarie's screenplay. Uh, it is quite simply masterful. Uh, he's, a, he's a clever man. There's definitely reverse-engineered screenplays that don't work, but somehow this one does, probably because it's just so entertaining and assured, and the tone is consistent. It throws so much at you, and when you re-watch and try to get the pieces together with a critical eye, well, it actually still works as well as you need a movie to work. Well, now, is it time for uh, random facts? Yeah. Maybe it's time, yeah? Okay, yeah. maybe it's time for random facts. Oh, and there there are plenty of little things. Uh, my first would be that the cigarette from Peter Green's character Redfoot into Baldwin's eye was apparently an accident. Uh, it was supposed to be in the chest, but Peter Green missed. Uh, that that said, uh, there's some stories about Mr. Green being uh, combative uh, during the shoot of Judgment Night with Emilio Estevez. Cuba Gooding Jr. and Dennis Leary. Uh, I've never seen apparently, that one. Uh, you're okay. Uh, <laughs> apparently, it was a real boys' club atmosphere with everybody trying to out tough each other, um, except Leary, who of course thought everyone was silly and just kept poking the bear with a stick the entire time. Uh, but according to the director of this classic film, uh, Stephen Hopkins. <laughs> Whose favorites of, you know, he, he's some I really like, uh, Predator 2, Ghost in the Darkness. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, they'd been out drinking, some of them, and Mr. Green was a little abrasive and possibly racist towards their taxi driver on the way back to the hotel. Mr. Hopkins' response, 
and he punched Mr. Green the fuck out. Uh, also, according to Mr. Hopkins, the actual tough guy there, Emilio Estevez. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's great when a director stops giving a shit and just tells what happens. I mean, at least according to him. Uh, I mean, William Friedkin never had that problem. Um, but, uh, I also want to say, uh, Mr. Green uh, was fantastic in Clean Shaven, a very rough and uncomfortable film by Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, and this is maybe our longest random fact of all time. And maybe least pertinent? It's like a random fact about uh, the, the A different movie. movie. <laughs> <laughs> Judgment Night. I don't know. I've never even seen it. So I guess. It's, it's not bad. It's just, you know, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Hey, whatever. That's, this is what random facts are for. So uh, random fact number two. <laughs> the movie came out to pretty much universal acclaim. Except Roger Ebert. He famously gave it thumbs down. One and a half stars. He found it confusing, and the parts he did get, he just didn't care about. We'll have to disagree. But uh, having seen this film a hundred times, it's still enthralling. Even after we know the entire story is bullshit being spun by an over-imaginative crime boss. I don't know. It's still enthralling. Yeah, well, actually, I wonder why... I wonder what that... (laughs) half star was for <laughs> but um yeah uh ebert was a little notorious for hating on specific things i mean the man was a critical pioneer and championed many films that might have been drowned in obscurity uh, hoop dreams maybe is a very fam- one of the most famous ones uh, but he also hated hard on the friday the 13th films which come on man like the <laughs> They're obviously supposed to be the worst and the best at the same time. And they I are. Mean, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry they aren't as nuanced as your script for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, but I do love Roger Ebert and still read his old reviews to this day, even if I don't agree with them. Um, but he's the reason I saw Eve's Bayou, among many other flicks I might have overlooked. Uh, and, and this flick did launch Del Toro into the big time, and he even won an Academy Award for being slightly less weird than usual uh, in traffic. <laughs> I, I think Del Toro can be surmised in one role specifically, which is Sicario, which I've heard uh, that he essentially cut his own dialogue down by as much as possible as he could with the blessing of the director. For me, I like a chill and calm Del Toro without the affectations he layers on oftentimes, like way too much frosting. And But but I think here, I think he bridges the gap between uh, being tweaky and calm. Hmm. I suppose then we could fit this under this Benicio random fact, but uh, he said his dialogue in this movie in a very, uh, well, in a barely intelligible way on purpose uh, the story goes that he reasoned his character was only there to die and scare the other guys into doing the job, so he thought that nothing his character said matters. So he decided to talk fast and in an undecipherable accent so that you couldn't really understand what he says. It led to some fun improv in the movie, like the lineup scene when uh, he has to say the line, you know, hand me the keys, you cocksucker, and the, the cop says, in English, please. That whole bit was improv because the actor playing a cop couldn't understand Benicio, so he said in English. (laughs) Sometimes improv can add a little something. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And this flick wasn't a huge financial success, although it more than made up for its production budget and became, you know, 
relatively famous pretty quickly uh, for its uh, twist ending. You know, it, it won some awards, you know, for Spacey and McQuarrie. Uh, but Seven, released literally uh, a few weeks later, was a huge out-of-the-blue hit. Uh, that relates because, of course, the third-act villain reveal is, uh, you want to give me a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it is Kevin Spacey who actually suggested himself that his name be left out of Seven's opening credits, lest it give the game away that he was the obvious villain of both films. So Kevin Spacey always had showmanship and a high level of conniving. Uh, big surprise. Uh, <laughs> personally, the first time I saw Seven, I, I assumed that the villain was Richard Roundtree, because... Um, Oh, because you're like wild to shift. Yeah, yeah, he has one scene. (laughs) (laughs) But um, to wrap up, (laughs) you can't get them all, buddy. Can't get them all. Can't get them all. all. (laughs) Uh, But to wrap up, um, this flick is endlessly studyable. I think we can both agree. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't really a random fact, but uh, just a thing I liked about the movie. Uh, When Arbash Kobash is shot in his little room on the boat. There's a, a, a shot from outside the room on the porthole, and you can see the hot condensation on the glass, and, and the bullet fires, and the blood mists up on the porthole. I, I love that effect. I, I can only think of one other movie that's done blood in that misting effect way, and that's uh, The Godfather in the restaurant scene. I know Coppola went to great lengths to get the blood there to mist up because the book described it as being misty. But I don't know that actual blood mists. Maybe a listener out there knows. I have no idea. But it does look cool in this movie and in The Godfather. I only saw a blood mist once when uh, I saw uh, my cousin get impaled on a, a lawn sprinkler. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> but anyway, you missed an opportunity to uh, break out your Pacino again. Did? Oh, yeah. Well, live and learn. <laughs> One last fun thing. Uh, I popped in the DVD to play this movie, uh, and it asked me to choose widescreen or standard. And if you're of our generation, perhaps you remember the debate. Widescreen or full screen? Uh, this movie puts a simple end to the issue visually by showing you your choices as two buttons. Widescreen has a still photo of our five main criminals in the lineup. Uh, full screen has a still photo of three criminals and two shoulders in a lineup. When faced with that, the choice is clear. But still, in the days of square tube TVs, I would find myself in arguments about this with people who didn't like the black bars on the top and the bottom of their screen. I mean, come on. Don't you want to see the whole movie as intended? It was a a problem when I worked at Circuit City in high school. Uh, It's at that cash register selling, among other electronics, DVDs. People would come up to the register with a copy of something great, say, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and it would say full screen on it, and I would cringe. And then depending on the size of the line, I'd try to talk them out of their purchase. I'd try to explain how they weren't getting the whole movie that way, and some people would get it, and they would thank me and go back to the aisle and grab a widescreen copy. If the line was short, I'd even walk them over myself and swap the copies out. But some people didn't want to hear. Some people would even fight me on it or take offense that I was trying to help them. And for people like that, I would just shake my head and know that I got the last laugh because they had an inferior copy. Now, of course, the debate is over because everyone has widescreen TVs. 
Now you have to fight to be able to preserve the full screen aspect ratio of shows that were created for tube TVs like The Wire or The Simpsons, because formatting them for HD and widescreen crops things incorrectly as well. It's a strange world to now have to fight for full screen content. High school Chris would not have thought he'd be on the other side of that battle. <laughs> Are we still recording? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> This is my, this is my soapbox, damn it. <laughs> yes, he, he does actually record on a soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have to share a mic anymore. I'm not on my tippy toes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not doing a half squat. <laughs> we have some fun news that we're pretty proud of over here and uh, wanted to share it with you listeners. We get some basic information about where listeners are located from the hosting site where we upload the podcast, and we now have listeners on six continents. So we're international. We're just missing Antarctica. Anybody know any uh, researchers down in Antarctica they can pitch the show to? Yeah, where you're at, uh, Kurt Russell. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Keith David, pick it up. Um, Wait. Was the thing in Antarctica? Weren't they? Oh, they shot in Alaska. Yeah, they shot in Alaska. Were, it was based. It was supposed a, to be Antarctica. Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Yeah, the North yeah, Pole. We, we got to get, North, yeah. get McCready on this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's a uh, it's very cool, and uh, we want to acknowledge our precious international listeners and all of our listeners here stateside. For all of you hearing us overseas and also uh, up north and down south, we just want to give you a special shout out. And, yeah, we're not the NSA, but as Chris said, we do have the ability to see what city you hail from, uh, whoever you are. So I am now going to name every single city that we have gotten downloads from <laughs> and give them a thank you. So uh, buckle your seatbelts. Uh, also, also, please forgive my pronunciation of your lovely cities, your lovely homes. I am, in fact, an ugly American. Also drunk, because it is noon. Uh, so uh, uh, thank you to... Tatsuno Nagano, Clichy, Lille de France, uh, thank you and I'm sorry, uh, Sydney, <laughs> New South Wales, Australia, Ferrum, England, Cape Town, Western Cape, South Africa, Illington, England, Bangkok, China, uh, I apologize for this one as well, uh, Renan, Vaud, Switzerland, also Lausanne, Vaud, Switzerland, uh, Herringay, England, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Heswall, England, Tokyo, Tokyo, Godzilla, uh, okay. Godzilla. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> this is not a geography podcast. Uh, we, we don't have time to listen to every single city that's been listening. But uh, but I will say, uh, bonjour les auditeurs en France, uh, merci beaucoup. Uh, I won't torture you any longer with my high school French. Uh, yeah, that's uh, French, to... French by way of uh, Pennsylvania, <laughs> I, I guess. Jersey, Jersey. Oh, uh, whatever. Uh my accent is a mix of Philadelphia from my father, Boston from my mother, and uh, Jersey. So it's it's wonder anybody can understand anything I say. Uh, I certainly but, don't yeah. myself. <laughs> I'm really just winging it all the time. Uh, so, yeah, hello to our French listeners. Uh, yeah, I, I won't torture you any longer with my high school French, but when I was in vacation uh, in Paris a few years ago, I was very excited to try my high school French skills out, ordering off of menus and such, but every single time I would start to speak, the Parisians would just say to me, English? 
And I would try to keep going in French, but uh, the first few times I tried, they made it very clear that they preferred that I not butcher their language. Uh, and frankly, it's just easier for them if we did English, so I gave up and spoke English the whole time. But I did love what I saw of Paris, but I aim to get back there one day. But we have a whole bunch of listeners here in the United States, so, uh, Will, if you want to continue your geography lesson, go ahead and throw some of those out there. Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. You uh, you cut me <laughs> off. You cut me off. Um, but here we are. Let's get back stateside. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Good looking out. Also, just just good looking. I see you over there, swaying that thing. Those uh, those peaches. You know. Uh, Cut Bank, Montana. Cheers to you. Uh, Xenia, Ohio. Thanks for staying um on a top of things. Which is a uh, golden eye. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Seattle, Minneapolis, Chicago, uh, Kensington, Long Island. Uh, who are you guys? Uh, we don't know, but thank you. And um, I mean, if you want to, you have any plans this weekend? I don't know, but um, yeah, right. Yeah. So it's very gratifying to see how spread out our listenership is. Uh, yeah, we, Texas, Kentucky, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Jersey. New York, PA, LA, Arizona, Michigan, Florida. Yeah, we got Florida in the house. Uh, it's great. And and before I get caught up in a geography lesson, I have one other shout out we wanted to do. Uh, our hosting website also gives us general data on what devices are being used to listen to. Uh, yeah, I assume it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's I assume the conch shell is from Florida. <laughs> the apple conch. But yes. Uh, but there are people out there listening to this right now on an Apple Watch. And to those listeners, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, there, there's just something about the idea of listening to our crime fiction podcast, uh, like it's a message on a Dick Tracy watch that just tickles my funny bone. makes me so happy. So, Yeah, also uh, anyways, watch, out, watch out for Flat Top. That guy's a wild card. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, yeah him and Prune Face. Mm, Got to look out. Yeah. But, but thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, no matter what country you're in, uh, or whatever device you're using, thank you. Extra props to the Dick Tracy Watch listeners, though. <laughs> and just a reminder, there's still a contest going on, listeners. We have not received an answer to our query from Episode 1. Our cover painting by the great Robert E. McGinnis is a beautiful new high-res scan, but it was originally used for a different book earlier in his illustrious career. If you can tell us what book our cover was originally used for, you're going to win a free poster print of our cover. So hit us up. Our email addresses are chris at crimeisuppodcast.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at crimeisuppodcast.com. And will at crimeisuppodcast.com. W-I-L-L at crimeisuppodcast.com. So feel free to reach out to us about anything, contest-related or not. We love hearing from you, so drop us a line. And tell us what you think of the show. Yeah, we love hearing from you guys. Uh, and so, yeah, please continue to hit us up for anything at all, and we shall answer whatever nonsense or salient points you have. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's it for this episode of the Crime Is Up podcast. Uh, we're hard at work on season two, and we'll keep you posted about our progress. But once a month, we're going to release a movie appreciation episode like this until we have season two ready. Yeah, and uh, up next, we'll be talking about a movie we both love by uh, our favorite madman director, Sam Peckinpah. We've got Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, <sighs> starring, yeah, just uh, just another Mount Rushmore face in uh, War and Oats. 
Yeah, I'm excited to talk about Warren Oates in that movie. I love Bring Me the Hit of Alfredo Garcia. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be next month. And our movie tie-in art this week was done by Robert Anthony. And Robert's piece here, you're really going to want to check out, listeners. Uh, it shows McManus pointing a gun at Kobayashi's head in that scene. Uh, Kill away, Mr. McManus. Robert put this pool of shadow across the right side of Pete Postlewaite's face. Uh, it's so deep and black, it's like he spilled his inkwell there. Uh, this one shows you what the usual suspects would have looked like if it were shot in the 1940s with high-contrast black-and-white style. I'm always delighted and surprised to see how Robert interprets a still when we send it to him, like what details he chooses to highlight. Yeah. Uh, here, the, the gun and the silencer are rendered with the, the little tiny white highlights. I really love that. And he got Pete Postlethwaite's indifferent eyes just right. It's bold and beautiful stuff, and I highly suggest you check it out on our Instagram, at Crime Is Up. And check out all of Robert's work over on Etsy and Instagram. He is at Robert Anthony Sketchworks. That's Sketchworks with an X, not a K-S. And if you dig Robert's style, he is available for commissions. Uh, whether that's a still from your favorite movie, Bacter, or Rockstar, or if you want a cool rendition of your wedding photo, he's game. And a pleasure to work with, if I might add. You, Ohio. <laughs> Columbus. <laughs> All right. Columbus, Ohio. That's, that's enough geography. Never. They know where they are. Our theme music was written and performed by Stephen Sinisi. Our series cover art was done by Robert E. McGinnis. The best way to make sure you never miss an episode of the Crime Is Up podcast is to subscribe wherever you get our podcast. That way, it'll pop into your feed when we have a new episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Stitcher, all of them. And we're on Instagram, at Crime Is Up, and on Facebook. All right, we'll be back in four weeks. Thank you for listening. And if you have a chance, please rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We're still a new podcast, and every bit helps us tremendously. And for our lucky 13th episode, I just wanted to leave you all with a little riddle. Uh, what is it that horses like most of all? Uh, carrots, hay, and warren oats. <laughs> Cut it, Stan. <laughs>